0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Center for Public Integrity, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Counterspin, Democracy Now!, and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver.
1: 2008, when an Australian food manufacturer wanted the U.S. federal government's stamp of approval on the company's new ingredients, regulators said no. But go inside many American supermarkets, and you'll find products containing them on the shelves. So how do new ingredients get from the lab to your dinner table? When companies create new food additives to improve their product's texture, taste, appearance, or to extend their shelf life, they have two choices. The food additive highway is a gridlocked route marked by government potholes. Traffic here is policed by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the federal agency that regulates 80% of the nation's food supply. Companies traveling this path must submit their food additives to extensive review. Then the FDA may issue its formal approval. This journey can take years, even decades, to complete. So it's no surprise that companies often take an alternative route, This road is paved by a legal loophole that hinges on what counts as a food additive. Changes to the law in the 50s created this two-lane system where anything generally recognized as safe or grass travels down a much smoother road to market. These grass ingredients are not considered food additives and effectively get a pass to the fast lane. This grass clause means companies can determine on their own that what they're adding to our food is safe. Then it's up to the company to inform the FDA if they want to. That's right. Companies have no legal obligation to tell the FDA what they're putting in our food. But if they do decide to pull in for inspection, they could get the FDA okay, which makes them more attractive to potential distributors. But what if the FDA doesn't like what it sees? Take lupin. It's a legume from the same family as peanuts. It's often used in Mediterranean cooking. It can also be ground into flour and used in gluten-free food. In 2008, when George Weston Foods told the FDA that they'd certified the use of lupin-based flour, protein, and fiber in food is safe, regulators at the FDA disagreed. It found that people with peanut allergies could suffer life-threatening reactions to lupin ingredients. FDA officials said ingredient labels listing lupin wouldn't be enough to protect consumers. The regulators refused to agree that the ingredients were generally recognized as safe. So George Weston Foods withdrew the notification, but other companies skipped the FDA checkpoint altogether. The Center for Public Integrity found products containing lupin on supermarket shelves. None included warnings for people who suffer from peanut allergies. Companies have added at least 1,000 ingredients to the food that we eat without ever telling the FDA.
2: In the last couple of years, there's been so much more research done into the addictive nature of sugar and comparing and contrasting the addictiveness of sugar versus some hard drugs. And there's a huge wake-up happening around sugar and sugary foods. And for today's classic interview, we're going to go back to May 6th of 2013, when we spoke to Michael Moss, who's a Pulitzer-winning investigative reporter from The New York Times, about his book, And it talks about food, it talks about sugar, and so many other things. And it's really a great, great interview, and particularly relevant, given the scientific revelations of the last, oh six to 12 months. Let's get right into it. Michael Moss is the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter at the New York Times. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Sugar, Salt, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Michael really a pleasure to talk to you and there's just so much in your book that I was uh, very interested in and I I picked out a few things that I think might be interesting to focus on today one that I want to talk about is when companies like Kraft and and a lot of these other players that we're very familiar with in the processed food industry started to see study after study linking the uh, sugar salt and fat-laden foods clearly to obesity How did they react? Well,
3: within these largest companies, there are actually, and this surprised me, cabals of insiders who became increasingly alarmed, not just from like a social policy standpoint, but also just from fear of losing the public trust. And early on in my research for the book, I came across this extraordinary meeting Way back in 1999, these insiders brought together the CEOs of some of the largest manufacturers in North America to talk about none other than the emerging obesity, diabetes, etc. epidemic. Um, And they stood up before these CEOs and made this incredible pitch. A senior official from Kraft gets up and armed with 114 slides, lays at their feet responsibility for the obesity crisis and and even links their foods with several cancers and pleads with them to do the right thing by consumers.
2: And what was the reaction to that pleading?
3: You know, from his perspective, the meeting was an utter failure. I mean, he even went so far as to warn them that the lawyers who went after Big Tobacco It wasn't just a matter of if but when they were going to come after big food with the same arguments that there are health effects from overconsumption of salt, sugar, fat, that the industry's over reliance on these ingredients has contributed to the epidemic and that the lawyers will come after that, if nothing else, to recover some of the public health care costs associated with obesity. The CEOs reacted defensively. They said, look, we already offer consumers of choice. We have in the grocery store products versions of our mainline products that are low-fat, low-sugar, have added grains. We do respond to the consumers, but we're also beholden to shareholders. We must keep our prices low. We must make our food tasty in order to sell product.
2: Which which is basically a reaction that says, while we may understand the connection between our products and the diseases you're talking about, we also have a responsibility to shareholders, which pushes back against the social responsibility you're talking about. I mean, is that not essentially what what that answer means? Yeah, I mean I think there's
3: essentially too also just a certain amount of denial when when inside these companies. I spent time with the former president of Coca-Cola for North America, South America, and at one time, you know, one point he said to me, "Look, Michael." You know, and by the way, he is now out there selling fresh carrots, doing what he calls karmic debt. For the 20 years he was one of Coke's fiercest warriors, and he said to me, "Look, Michael, you know when you're inside the company in your day-to-day battle with competitors, in their case Pepsi, you're just not sort of, seeing the big picture, not wanting to see the big picture. So it's not as if these companies and their employees are evil empires, intentionally setting out to to get us overweight or otherwise ill." There are companies doing what companies do, which is make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible.
2: Talk a little bit about the bliss point. In the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, you talk about the bliss point, And I think that that's a concept that would be interesting to our audience.
3: I was really stunned at the amount of science, uh, they call it engineering that goes into creating new foods, Bliss well, Point is the term that the industry came up with to describe the perfect formula of sweetness in foods that would send us over the moon, guarantee high sales for them. A legend in the industry named Howard Moskowitz, trained in high math, experimental psychology at Harvard, walked me through his recent creation of a new soda flavor for Dr. Pepper and to achieve the bliss point the perfect sort of formulation he started with 61 different formulations of sweetness each one just slightly different than the other subjected those to 3000 consumer taste tests threw the data into his computer did his high math regression analysis thing and came up with a very perfect formula that would wow us and guarantee the company a hit
2: and when you and say that, when you say oh, i'm sorry go ahead yeah
3: no, I was just going to say. What's fascinating about sugar is that we don't have an endless desire for sugar. Anybody who drinks coffee and likes it sweet can do the experiment themselves. Just keep adding sugar till you get the point where you really like it. Keep adding more, and you know, eventually you'll go yuck. This is awful. So the bliss point typically is is calculated. The data is on a chart that looks like a bell-shaped curve, where at the very top of the of the curve, not too little, not too much, is the perfect amount of sugar sweetness.
2: So before we talk a little about the implications of that kind of uh, food engineering, the other fascinating thing in the book, uh, of many, is your salt story, right? This story about, well, when you look at the back of a can of soup or whatever it is, I'm always shocked by the amount of sodium that it has. And I say, why couldn't they just make the same product but just put less salt in it? It'll be healthier, and will people really miss it if it's salty and not incredibly salty? But you actually know about why that doesn't work.
3: I had the exact same question, and the answer is basically they are more hooked on salt than we are. And to demonstrate that for me, some of the largest companies, Kraft, Campbell Soup, and especially Kellogg made for me some of their icons without salt added. I went to Babble Creek, Michigan, research and development headquarters of Kellogg, and started tasting some of these icons with their people. And I have to tell you, it was the most god-awful experience I ever had. <laughs> we started with the cheese, its crackers, which normally I could eat all day long. These we couldn't even swallow. They stuck to the roof of our mouth. Without salt, they lacked texture, solubility. The frozen waffles were even worse. We popped them in the toaster. They came out looking and tasting like straw. <laughs> and the clincher was the cornflakes. Put it in, you know. We put some put in the bowl with some milk and taste. And before I could say anything, the chief spokeswoman for the company got this look of horror on her face, and she swallowed and blurted out the word metal, (laughs) M-E-T-A-L. She, I taste metal. And the chief scientist is sitting there going, Yeah, well, that's one of the beauties of salt for us is that it will mask some of the off notes, the bad flavors that can creep into some food processing. So is that
2: really the source of this, Michael, which is in in everyday cooking, if you're using kind of whole ingredients, you don't need salt to cover the fact that the ingredients have been processed. Is that really why the salt is there? It's not as a preservative as we often hear.
3: Right. Well, in fact, being a preservative, the other thing that it's incredibly useful to too is that when you cook for yourself, you don't need it doesn't have to sit in your refrigerator for two months at a right. time. I talked to a meat maker who actually has really low sodium salt in their products. I said why, and they go, well, well actually, because we make our meat for the deli counter, not the you know not the grocery store aisle. So. It has a, you know, seven-day lifespan. So, yeah, preservative. The other you know, incredible, brilliant thing about salt to the industry, it's really low cost. Ten cents a pound. They can use it to avoid using more costly ingredients like fresh herbs and spices.
2: Last thing, and we don't have too much time here, which I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, is have using, has the consumption of these processed foods, which have so much salt and these uh, finely tuned uh, bliss points of sugar, has this kind of changed the standard of people's palates and how normal food is judged such that it's completely skewing our perception of what food is?
3: Oh, absolutely. And scientists, even within the food industry, are alarmed at the way, for example, sweetness has become, has migrated through the grocery store out of the dessert aisle through the rest of the store and is teaching kids to expect sweetness in almost everything. Bread is now sweet. You know, yogurt can have as much sugar in it as ice cream. Pasta sauces can have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies and a half cup serving of pasta sauce. And that sort of, especially with sugar, but also fat and salt, sort of the the extent to which the processed food industry has helped shape our desire for and our expectation for large amounts of these three ingredients is part of the issue that the public health system is now struggling with.
2: Well, the book, once again, is Sugar, Salt, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. We've been speaking with the book's author, Michael Moss. Really great to have you on. Fascinating. I, I encourage our audience to check out the book.
4: Like many things in the United States, the health curriculum of public school students has now been bought off by major corporations that sell junk food. The curriculum is based on something known as energy balance, this whole notion that you can eat whatever you want as long as you exercise and work it off. Now, we all know that not all calories are created equally. Sugar has a much more negative impact on our bodies than anything else that we could eat. However, that's not what Coca-Cola is interested in teaching kids. Now, the class is part of Together Counts, an educational campaign promoting energy balance that is wholly funded by a group called the healthy weight commitment foundation which is in turn run by and bankrolled by junk food corporations so indra nui who is the ceo of pepsi uh is the chair of the board and directors include the ceos of kellogg hershey nestle usa uh also coca-cola unilever smucker and general mills
5: so look those companies have a lot of products and you know mother jones calls it uh, the junk food industry and it's totally fair to call some of their products junk food. Uh, Some of the other products are not necessarily junk food. In fact, not necessarily, definitely not, right? They do baby food. They do all sorts of different things. Now, uh, they are encouraging kids to exercise. They're pouring $10 million into that. That's positive. But we can't have it. We can't have a curriculum that says, okay, exercise, that's a good thing. Uh, But, you know, let's put the emphasis on that. Let's not put the emphasis on what you eat. And a calorie is a calorie. It's. It turns out it's just not. It's, it's not. just not. The fructose is much more damaging than glucose. It is. Sugar is more damaging than non-sugar. Yeah. So that's just not. We can't have you teach things that aren't true to the kids.
4: So Mother Jones looked into the curriculum. They did excellent reporting on this. And uh, one thing that they found, and this is among many other very questionable issues in the curriculum, was that uh, they asked the students hey, is it bad to eat cookies? And they're like, no, of course it's not bad to eat cookies. They're delicious and fun to eat. All you got to do is exercise. But here's the thing. If you have an unhealthy diet, you can go to the gym twice a day. It's not going to matter. Diet is more important than exercise when it comes to keeping the weight off. There's no question about that. So this whole myth about eat whatever you want as long as you work out is dangerous to kids, is dangerous to the public at large. And I remember doing a study um, on the show once about People who work out regularly are actually more likely to gain weight because they've been tricked into thinking that if I work out every day I can eat whatever I want. Now people who understand the importance of diet are not as you know impacted by that. But we got to educate our kids and we can't have corporations who sell junk food telling our kids what they can and can't eat. That's crazy.
5: So again, they're not legislating here, but it is the power of the media and, and, and in this case uh, propaganda, right? I'm sure that those CEOs would say, well, look, we were trying to do something good. You know, Michelle Obama wants people to exercise. We're trying to help them exercise. Uh, And as much as it's a good thing that you put money in and other people didn't put money in, a calorie is not a calorie, so we can't have it, right? So let me give you an uh, example of what I'm talking about here. A 2013 study uh, tested, and they uh, gave people an extra 150 calories per day, uh, and that was just, just normal 150 calories, okay, across the board. Uh, and it turns out there there was no risk, extra risk, in diabetes. It did not increase your risk of diabetes at all. Okay? That's very interesting. But then they had him eat 150 calories of sugar per day, and that was correlated with an 11-fold increase in diabetes rates. A calorie is not a calorie. Okay? So that's just not true. So we can't have it. <laughs> I've said it three times now, yet we have it. <laughs> because you know what happens? I Again, I think that... The the schools mean well. They're like, oh my God, $10 million to help tell kids to exercise. Let's do that, right? Mm -hmm. That seems like a great offer. Uh, Let's take that. But the overall problem here is yes, sugar is worse than other kinds of calories. Fructose is not broken down, is only broken down by your liver, whereas glucose is broken down by other parts of of your body as well. And so, because of that, your liver gets oversaturated. And this is a simplistic way of explaining it, but it's, it's. You know, you can look and see the studies for yourself, and and, and it is true. So what happens then is it turns it into fat right away, and it tells you you're still hungry. So high fructose corn syrup is killing us. That's what's, in some cases, quite literally, right? But that's causing, it's a huge, it's not the only factor. Nobody's ever that simplistic. I hope not, okay? But it is a huge factor in the obesity rates in America, and to the increased diabetes, et cetera. we got to get the high-fructose corn syrup. By the way, you know why we have high-fructose corn syrup in, in Coke when we didn't used to? That's why a lot of people are now doing Mexican Coke, because it has sugar and not high-fructose corn syrup. Okay, but
6: doesn't sugar break down just as poorly as, as, as fructose? No,
5: fructose breaks down worse than glucose. Right. Right? So when you do high-fructose corn syrup, it's worse than just regular sugar. Sugar's sugar is worse than other the calories, and fructose is worse than glucose. So... Um, it's also in all the processed foods, it's in all the junk food, it's in all the chips and the cookies that I love. I love them, I love them, but they pack and full of high-fructose corn syrup and then we're all blowing up as a country. Why do they pack them with that? Because it's cheap. Why is it cheap? Because of corn subsidies. Oh, here we go again. The corruption in politics has literally blown up the country. <laughs> in this case, our waistlines. Seriously, the corn subsidies made corn so cheap that they replaced regular sugar with high fructose corn syrup in all of these products and that has made us much much fatter we gotta get it out
6: Too fast.
7: On many issues, Americans are happy to leave it to the experts. But when it comes to food, many people care very deeply. But wanting to make informed choices about what they eat and how it's produced sometimes leads people to ask questions that food industries would rather not answer. That's why journalism is so important and why it matters so much who appears in stories as an authority that we should listen to and believe. Our next guest brings a case study that shows why we are right to be mindful. A longtime food and agriculture journalist, Carrie Gillum is now research director at U.S. Right to Know. She joins us by phone from Kansas. Welcome to Counterspin, Carrie Gillum.
8: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
7: Well, first of all, the Freedom of Information Act turns 50 this year, and I think it's hard to overstate its value to journalists and to the public, and I understand that FOIA played a role in the story that we're going to talk about. So before we get into what was revealed about former food science professor and media source Bruce Chassie, what do we know about how the information came to light?
8: Yeah, what we did at U.S. Right to Know was do Freedom of Information Act requests actually at several different universities, and it's been a bit of a struggle to actually get those returned, but we have thousands of them, and we've been going through them to find out just exactly how closely are certain academics at publicly funded universities, how are they really working and aligning themselves if they are with private corporations that are trying to push certain political agendas and lobby for public policy matters. We wanted to see really what that relationship is, where is the money flowing, what are the connections, because we're getting the information that things weren't being revealed to the public that we thought were pretty important.
7: Well, when we talk about conflicts of interest between, for example, an academic and a industry with a particular set of ideas and policies that they want to promote and other ideas that they want to discourage. Sometimes we're talking about maybe expensive dinners or perhaps travel that was covered to go to a conference. And these are things that even if they might seem to point to a kind of unseemly culture, They don't really, for many people, constitute a smoking gun. They don't seem like evidence of a quid pro quo. But when we talk about Bruce Chassie, who was a food science professor at the University of Illinois and at NIH for many years, that situation, which you've written about just recently, it seems much more stark than that.
8: Well, yeah, now I would agree with that. I uh, have to admit that my jaw was dropped and hanging open most of the time I was reading these emails. It seems unbelievable to me that this is okay, that what we found doesn't seem to violate specific policies or ethics rules at the university, but it doesn't. But what the emails do show Is that this particular professor, and he's one of, you know, many, but he's a very good example. This particular professor has a long track record, highly esteemed, and he and Monsanto company in particular became very close and collaborated on a regular basis about a range of things. Presentations that Chassis would make supporting genetically modified crop technology that Monsanto, you know, relies on, that Monsanto makes its $15 billion a year in revenues on. As you probably know, GMOs are pretty controversial right now. GMO labeling is at the forefront in Washington D.C. for new legislation. Mandatory labeling is set to take effect in Vermont in July. The food industry is fighting that desperately. Monsanto has spent millions of dollars lobbying against state mandatory labeling measures across the country. So to have an academic who appears to be independent Coming out and writing reports and making presentations and speeches and saying that consumers are wrong and GMOs are safe and we need them to feed the world and it's very sustainable and there's no safety issue and the pesticides that go with them are not a problem. You know, to have an independent academic standing up and saying all this is a wonderful thing for Monsanto. But what you see through these emails is that it was all very coordinated and very crafted by Monsanto and Monsanto PR operatives. Public relations firms are helping Chassy edit videos that he can put out. Um, they're giving him slides for presentations. They're helping him set up a website where he can write negative critical articles about people who are raising concerns about GMOs. And there's a lot of money flowing back and forth, or actually one way, a lot of money flowing into accounts at the university for Chassis to use.
7: Yeah, and I would direct people to the website, to usrtk.org, to see examples from the emails that we're talking about. But we're talking about real direct stuff. You mentioned that presentation. Chassis is going to make a presentation in China, and there are emails that show him, you know, basically submitting what he's going to say to Monsanto and them making changes to it, you know, and him saying, all right, Monsanto will shape what I'm going to say about these set of issues. And then also on the other side, there's the money. There are the emails that connect it to a a financial relationship between, in this case, the University of Illinois, and, in this case, Monsanto.
8: Right, yeah. There are accounts set up where unrestricted funds, grants, donations, gifts, can be sent from Monsanto, and Chassis can then access those funds and use them in different ways and for different projects. And there's no real problem with that, I guess, from the university. Now, Chassis on, on his behalf, he says, hey, I believe GMOs are safe. You know, I'm a fan of GMOs, and so I'm not doing anything unethical. I'm not being bought. I'm not selling my integrity. But what you see in the emails is something that, that goes much deeper. I think he's not going to Monsanto and saying, hey, I'm going to make a presentation. I want to check the science on this and make sure I'm accurate. This is an active back and forth. How do we promote this? They talk about how to spin some information that's come out of the U.S. Geological Survey. Chassis offering how Monsanto might spin that because it doesn't, on its face necessarily look too good he's helping them figure out how to lobby the epa to try to roll back regulations on biotech crops he's asking for help getting first class plane fare (laughs) to go to india because he sure doesn't want to fly coach i mean there's a lot that we weren't able to put into our article but it it certainly shows a very hand-in-glove situation where this independent academic is very much promoting public policy issues for a private corporation.
7: Hiding the strings is important, and I think that's kind of where journalists come in, because... There's a quote that you have uh, from Monsanto's chief of global scientific affairs, Eric Sachs, in which he says, the key will be keeping Monsanto in the background so as not to harm the credibility of the information. In other words, they're explicit about the fact that they want these views to get out into the media and to public opinion, but to not seem to be tied to Monsanto, you know. So again, that's where journalism comes in. And unfortunately, you find that journalists quoting Bruce Chassie, in this case, don't often do a great job of, of illuminating those connections.
8: Journalists don't. He's been quoted widely in many reputable newspapers, very large news outlets, and so are several others. There are several others around the country who journalists reach out to, of course, to ask for quotes on these very timely, you know, hot-button political issues. And I don't think it occurs to journalists. You know, I've been a journalist 25 years. It doesn't often occur to you If you're calling up to say, hey, talk to me about weed resistance and what's going on, you know, with glyphosate or let's talk about the safety of GMOs, it doesn't often occur to you to say, hey, by the way, have you been emailing, you know, with Monsanto for the last two years and getting tens of thousands of dollars in unrestricted grants from them as I ask you your opinion on this subject? You know, it's not something you typically do as a journalist. You will do that if you're writing about a particular study per se. You want to know who funded the study or who funded the research, but I think, to me, what all of this that we're seeing and we're finding tells me as a journalist is that we just need to be a lot more diligent. We need to really think about, is there something going on behind the scenes here? And even if we don't know or even if we don't think they're going to tell us, we need to ask the question Mm -hmm. and get them on the record. Yes, there is a connection. No, because Kevin Fulta, we had Kevin Fulta emails from him at the University of Florida. He specifically said he had no relationship with Monsanto, wasn't taking money from Monsanto. And, in fact, he got a $25,000 unrestricted grant and told Monsanto he was willing to write whatever they wanted him to write. Mm -hmm. But he sure wasn't telling the public that.
7: Exactly. It really is kind of about the right to know. I mean, just as people want labels on GMO foods because different people feel differently about eating them, you know, we, we need, if you will, labels on our experts, not so that we can denounce them, but just so that we can know.
8: Exactly. You know, there may be some people who think that Bruce Chassie is that much more of an authority because he is so close with Monsanto. Maybe they would respect his opinion more. Granted, there are a lot of people on the other side who probably wouldn't trust the information, but without knowing those connections, without the disclosure and the transparency, and again, this is a a man who is working for a public university, a taxpayer-funded university, We're all paying for that university, we're paying for these professors, and we should know the connections to private corporations. And, you know, we should be able to understand those collaborations. There should be transparency.
7: We've been speaking with Carrie Gillum of US Right to Know. You can find them and their work online at USRTK.org. Carrie Gillum, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
8: Thank you for having me. There's a lot
9: of soul.
6: Drinking from the well. Locked in a factory
8: Since we've
7: last talked, the WTO issued a a major decision around meat. Can you explain its significance and how it fits
10: into the story? So that's that's what I was mentioning before. So, you know, everyone go, you go to the grocery store, if you're a meat eater, and you pick up the package and it says where the meat was born, raised, and processed. And that is a huge fight. It took 50 years for us consumer groups to actually get mandatory country of origin labeling for meat. And that was enacted in the 2008 Farm Bill. So we've all been using that. It also is very helpful because you know if there's been a food safety outbreak someplace, you know, don't buy from there. It also helps with tracing because if, for instance, hamburger is mixed from 50 different countries, you'd have to list all the countries. So it creates an incentive to actually know where the meat comes from as well as gives us consumers the information to make informed choices. The World Trade Organization recently issued a final ruling saying, unless we ixnade that law, we were going to face billions in trade sanctions. And the history of this is the U.S. meatpacking industry, plus their Canadian and Mexican counterparts, didn't want this law. And they tried in federal court. They tried to fight us in Congress. It only took 50 years. We finally won. The law becomes the law of the land. And the polling shows 90% of Americans love that law. Well, when they couldn't win in the democratic process of our courts, of our Congress, these interests went to a trade tribunal. Mexico and Canada challenged the law at the WTO in one of the trade tribunals, saying this violates the U.S. obligations at the WTO. And the tribunal, one tribunal after another after an appellate one, They said yes. The U.S. government even changed the law to address the technical errors that the WTO tribunal pointed out. And again, we lost the appeal. So basically, Canada and Mexico at the end were in a position, because this is how it works, to say to the U.S. either kill the law or pay $2 billion in trade sanctions every year. Every year for the right of knowing where our meat comes from and the congress said oh oh my god trade war let's avoid the sanctions and they gutted the law so if you go to the grocery store now you're gonna notice that's gone that is a real live example of our day-to-day lives not about jobs but our day-to-day food the environment being undermined by these agreements and if TPP is allowed to go through imagine that on steroids We have the ability to stop TPP by getting our representatives now in this election year coming up when they're most sensitive to commit to voting no. But it's on us because in our country is where it can be stopped and we can do this. It's already, there are a lot of members of Congress who don't like the agreement, but using this trans Canada case, using the meat example, those are real ways we can help educate our neighbors, our friends about what the risk is. Everyone knows TPP means more job offshoring and lower wages, but it's more than that. That's terrible, and it's all these other things, too. And if we educate people and aim them at our members of the House of Representatives, get commitments to vote no, we can avoid doubling down on this disaster.
7: Laurie Wallach, I want to thank you for being with us, Director of Public Citizen's Global Trade Watch.
0: My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time, and the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
2: We continue to learn more and more about TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we've talked about the impact that it will have uh, if if uh, turned into law by the member countries on intellectual property, on Internet freedom, on big pharma, on many other things. And in all of these cases, it would be very anti-consumer, that we know. Expose the TPP.org has a great summary of, of another important issue from TPP which is how it would impact food safety the TPP would allow the US it would actually let me go further it would require the US to allow food imports if the exporting country claims that their safety regime is equivalent to that of the United States even if it violates key principles of the US food safety laws and under TPP Any U.S. food safety rule on pesticides, labeling, or additives that is higher than international standards would be subject to be challenged as illegal trade barriers. So the TPP could reduce the level of food safety that the U.S. has above and beyond international standards. The U.S. might have to eliminate those rules. As it stands, and you you may not know this, and I didn't know this, I you know. I don't know how much anybody knows uh, uh, just sort of casually about food inspection. The US FDA already is inspecting under 1% of all seafood imports for health hazards. We're entering into TPP with Malaysia and Vietnam, both major seafood exporters. And they already, even in the small amounts of, of fish exports, of seafood exports from those countries that have been tested, there have been high levels of contaminants found. Under TPP, it would be even more lax, and we would have even fewer recourses, fewer uh, ways of fighting that and increasing inspection standards. Also, food labeling under TPP could be, we don't yet know, could be challenged as trade barriers. The TPP would impose limits on labels providing information about where food comes from this is bad and the frustration and rage that we should all have with this is uh, it's 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 large I don't know how else to say it we're talking about a deal that impacts it would impact 40 percent of the world economy it was negotiated basically in secret and it is going to affect more areas of life than we can imagine and people are more concerned with Starbucks cups and sex education classes and whether a book that was assigned to a fifteen-year-old as I told you yesterday mentions genitalia priorities are way off in this country there have been many protests uh, to the European sort of version of TPP which is TTIP uh, some protest in the US against TPP the more we learn about it the worse we realize it is you can find out more at Expose the TPP.org.
9: La, la 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 la. Stand in solid ground. On solid ground. It's the land. It is our wisdom. It's the land. shines us through. It's the land. It feeds our children. It's the land. It cannot own the land. The land owns you. It's the land, it is our wisdom. It's the land that shines us through. It's the land, it feeds our children. It's the land, you cannot own the land. The land owns you.
11: Chickens. Basically turkeys with eating disorders. (laughs) We love eating chicken in this country, so much so that we have to produce a lot of it.
5: In the last uh, 25 years, the chicken industry has uh, doubled its production and headcount from 80 million uh, chickens a week to now about 160 million chickens a week.
11: 160 million chicks a week. Those are Warren Beatty numbers. Th- those, are, those are Rob Lowe at the St. Elmo's Fire Premier party numbers. You know what? Those are clean-shaven Leonardo DiCaprio on a yacht anchored outside the Cannes Film Festival numbers. That's a lot of chicks. That's an unmanageable amount of chicks. <laughs> we eat so much chicken, it has become our reference point for what every other meat tastes like.
0: You're pretty good. I'm telling you, man, it doesn't taste like lizard, it tastes like, it tastes like chicken.
6: Raccoon is a
7: delicacy in China. I hear it tastes like chicken.
0: You know what that uh, alligator meat tastes like? Hmm, chicken.
11: What does that taste like? Um, I really hate to say this, it really tastes like chicken. Armadillo tastes like chicken? <laughs> but th- th- think about that. That, that's amazing. There is no parallel for the other senses. If I said to you, everything looks like tables, or everything feels like koosh balls, you'd think I was insane. <laughs> now, obviously, all of this has been great news for the poultry industry, which is dominated by four gigantic companies. Pilgrims, Tyson, Purdue, and Sanderson Farms. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, this is just going to be another story about how horribly chickens are treated. And I know we do hear about that a lot. Chickens and turkeys are arguably the most abused animals on the face of the planet.
8: You probably have no idea what goes into making a bucket of KFC chicken. Sadly, the main ingredient is cruelty.
11: Okay, Pam, look, let, let's be fair there. The, the main ingredient in KFC chicken is not cruelty, it's chicken. The, the only thing where cruelty is the main ingredient is child stars. It goes, cruelty, glitter, child, and then statistically, chicken. And, and yes... Chickens, no doubt, can be treated terribly, but that is not what this story is about. This is about chicken farmers, and unfortunately, this is going to be a lot less pleasant than what you are looking at right there. (laughs) Poultry companies would have you believe chicken farmers have it made, smiling in their promotional videos, always, no matter the company, over the top of jangly guitar music.
4: It's a good
6: feeling to to have a flock of birds that are beautiful, healthy, you know you've done a good job. The best product that you could produce has just left your farm.
10: If someone called me up tomorrow and said, would you be a poultry farmer all over again, I would say yes.
8: Sometimes I don't understand him as well as I
4: do the chickens. <laughs>
11: yeah, of course you don't. Your husband is an adult human with a vibrant interior life for washing infinite complexities, and that is just a fucking chicken. So, yes, <laughs> it's easier to understand. But despite those beautifully produced testimonials, it turns out many farmers have a very different experience. I've had five heart attacks since I've been in the chicken business. The struggle
8: has been very real, and there's been lots of nights that we haven't slept.
11: It's kind of tough not kind of tough it is tough and it has been tough for a long time multiple studies have shown that many growers whose sole source of income was chicken farming live below or near the poverty line which sounds insane how can the people who make the meat we eat the most barely be making a living we eat chicken when it's been popcorned Uh, when it's been fingered, and when it's in Disney's mouse-shaped nuggets, which, incidentally, is a little legally suspicious. Listen, there might be mouse in these, but we technically told you, so you cannot sue. This, This is all thanks to a system called contract farming. Contract farming is basically chicken daycare. Companies bring baby chicks to an independent farm, drop them off, and pick them up little more than a month later when they're fully grown. I'm I'm assuming that's how daycare works. (laughs) 97% of chickens are raised this way. And when the chicken companies describe it, again, over jangly fucking guitars, they make the system sound great for farmers.
0: Tyson Foods actually owns the feed in the feed bins, and we actually own the chickens in the house. However, the properties, the equipment, the labor, everything around the business on the farm is actually owned by the farmer.
11: You've got to hand it to them. Jangly guitars simply make anything sound more plausible. Here, I'll show you. Give me some music. Mickey Mouse nuggets take the finest chicken, no mouse, and cover it with breadcrumbs, no mouse. Our nuggets are the epitome of mouseless chicken, one mouse. See, what? but, But think about what that guy actually just said. You own the property and the equipment, we own the chickens. That essentially means you own everything that costs money, and we own everything that makes money. Because typically farmers go into a great deal of debt just to build chicken houses and go into the business. And the moment you sign that contract, the chicken companies have a lot of leverage over you. So all those horrible conditions that chickens are kept in, farmers might not care for those either.
1: Bound by contract. Craig is not even allowed to give them sunshine or fresh air. If you get that natural sunlight,
6: the birds more active, If they don't want that, they want him sitting down, getting up, taking a drink, a bite to eat, and sitting back down. He gets fat then. Well, I absolutely would do away with solid walls. I would give them
11: back sunlight, letting sunshine and fresh air in. Is number one the birds love it, and number two, it's better for me. Yeah, but of course. Chicken companies won't let you do that. They know that chickens are like reality stars. The happier they are, the less money they're worth. There is, there is a reason that E cancelled keeping up with Alan and Arlene Alder, partners and best friends, for 50 years. And it's, it's not because Alan was too good a listener. And, and the problem is, as fast as farmers try to pay down their debts, companies can pile more on by demanding that they make expensive upgrades.
6: The companies on a regular basis come around and say, well, you have to do this upgrade or that upgrade, and if you don't, you're not going to get chickens anymore.
10: we got to have this, you got to have that, you got to have this, you know. It started out first it was nipple drinkers, and then it went to tunnel houses, and then it went to uh, blackout curtains on the south side, and all this more stuff ended up costing more than our original buildings.
11: And that must be frustrating. Farming chickens is like hooking up with James Franco. Look, James, first you wanted us to try nipple drinkers, which was weird, but I put up with it. Then it was the tunnel house, which was even worse, and now you want us to try blackout curtains? No, James, no! I'm out! We're done, James, we're done! So, if you think about it, at at this point, a farmer may have borrowed over a million dollars for houses and improvements. But they do this because they're led to believe that they'll have a steady source of income. Except they're actually paid according to a tournament or gladiator system. And unfortunately, again, it is significantly less adorable than what you are looking at right here. <laughs> because watch one business journalist explain it. The company takes, you know, it could be as many
6: as 100 farmers in an area. And then it ranks them against one another. Those in the
11: top half will get a bonus payment, extra money. Those in the bottom half will get a deduction. They'll get financially punished. And what that means is that you are competing against your neighbours. If they produce fatter chickens with less feed, your pay gets cut. And not by a little. You can be paid nearly half as much as other growers per pound for reasons not entirely within your control. It's like an agricultural Glen Gary Glen Ross, or Hen Gary Hen Ross, if you will. (laughs) A, B, C. A, always, B, B, C, clucking do it and look I do not apologize for that joke I stand by it I stand by that no 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 you had your chance you didn't get on board and look losing a tournament and being labeled a bad grower cannot just cost farmers their home it can cost them a lot more
4: this past Monday morning in North Carolina one of these bad growers went out drove down a country road He was terminated from his contract, about to lose his home, took a gun, and ended his life. That's what we're talking about here today. This is personal.
11: It gets real for poultry growers. At this point, you may be angry at the chicken industry, but careful. You need to leave a little room, because you're about to get even angrier. A chicken industry spokesman was actually asked about why so many farmers
9: live below the poverty line, And this was his response. Which poverty line uh, are you referring to? Is that a national poverty line? Is that a state poverty line? Poverty line in in Mississippi and Alabama is different than it is uh, in New York City. What the f*** are
11: you talking about? It doesn't matter. The poverty line is like the age of consent. If you find yourself passing exactly where it is, you've probably already done something very, very wrong. And, And the thing is, chicken farmers can't even complain because one of the reasons that you've not heard about this story is that to hear farmers tell it, companies take a hard line with complainers. Every time that I've spoke out against the poultry companies and the wrongdoings, they
6: they retaliate by cutting my pay, cutting my chickens back, cutting the quality of my chickens that I get. They're ranked one through ten. Number one is the best chicken they got, number ten is the poorest chicken coming off. Sometimes based on your mouth, You'll get a lot of 8, 9, and 10 chickens.
11: Holy shit! When controlling arseholes threaten their dependents with numerically inferior chicks, that's not a responsible business model, that is entourage. That's what that is. Hey, if you ding my Benz bra, I'll have every girl in LA avoid your dick like it's a fucking carbohydrate. <laughs> Can't wait for the movie. I cannot wait for the movie. It's gonna be sick. It's gonna. The boys are back. The boys are back. The boys are back. And and remember, if you're given inferior chicks, you are going to suffer in the tournament and potentially lose your farm. Now, the chicken companies claim that they don't do that. Although I will note that in researching this story, we've spoken to a lot of farmers who believe it to be real and are terrified of it happening to them. A few years ago, the Obama administration tried to address many of these problems with new regulations. They held town hall meetings and there was something of a common theme. Let me say that numerous growers are not attending these workshops because of being afraid of retaliation on them by their
0: integrator. In the last 48 hours, we've had growers who've been threatened not to attend this meeting and not to speak out.
5: I represent or help represent 650 chicken growers in the state of Alabama. And I'll be, out of all the 650 of them, there's two that was not afraid to come up here. I'm not saying I'm brave. I'm saying I'm not. I'm a proud American. I'm a veteran. And I need the right to be able to
11: talk to y'all today. That, That is an impressive man. Now, if you worked for the chicken industry, you would have to be an idiot to stand up in that room and try to defend your behavior. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you an idiot. Five years ago, knowing what you know, or at least I think you must have known, why would you get into a business that you feel, at least from your comments, that's not a very good business. Wait, why did you let us f**k you over is not a defense against f**king people over. It just isn't. And luckily, there was a farmer in that very room who was happy to explain things to him. My
6: comment is directed towards a gentleman that said she wondered why Valerie Ruddle got into the business. I can tell you the reason why she got into it is the company lied. When you put numbers down on a piece of paper to get the bankers to loan you the money, and then it don't follow through, how do you make bank payments? We've heard a lot of information here today, and I really didn't want to get up here and speak.
11: But we really need these rules, and we need them quick. We need rules, and we need them quick. You know this guy is serious. Because he's talking like someone who just caught his roommate masturbating in the living room. (laughs) House meeting. House meeting. I know it's just the two of us, but Greg, this needs to stop. House meeting now. Strike four, Greg. Strike four on you, Greg. Now, the good news is, protective rules for poultry farmers did actually get written. The bad news is, they are not currently being enforced. Because every year since the rules were written, a rider has been inserted into the Agricultural Appropriations Bill that explicitly forbids the USDA from enforcing them. And, And in recent years, this effort has been championed by Representative Steve Womack. So, why does he do this? Who knows? Maybe it's because his home district is the site of Tyson's World Headquarters, or the fact that he's received tens of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from chicken companies, or maybe he is just sexually attracted to chickens and (laughs) is jealous that farmers get to spend so much time with them. I don't know. I'm speculating here. (laughs) The point is, he has fought efforts to protect farmers. Just last year, Representative Marcy Kaptur attempted to pass an amendment simply giving farmers protection to speak out without retaliation. That was it. And she made a convincing
10: case. The Department of Agriculture wants to enforce these regulations so that farmers have standing and that they don't have their livelihoods taken away from them simply because they're allowed to speak about their conditions. What is wrong with that? What is wrong with that? And what is wrong with that is that the companies in this situation have too much power. Those doing the work in these houses don't have enough power. We need to give them equal standing in the courts and in their ability to come and see us and exercise their rights of free speech. Please support this amendment. Wow. 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 That is is the kind of speech that normally has
11: soaring music behind it and precedes a come-from-behind victory at the end of a movie. But in real life... This is what happened immediately afterwards. Please support this
1: amendment.
6: Question is on the captor amendment, all in favour say aye.
1: Aye. Aye. Aye.
11: All opposed will say no. No. The no's seem to have it. That is the most depressing ending since the Sex and the City movie. Oh, big Carrie, big, you're better than that Carrie. If anything you should have ended up with Aidan, yes, yes. Yes, Aidan was boring, Carrie, but guess what? So are you. So are you, Carrie. And look, look, I know this story has been depressing, and you might be wondering what you can do. I mean, you could stop eating chicken, but you're not going to do that because chicken is delicious. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it now. Here, mm, delicious. It tastes like armadillo. (laughs) You could say, you could say, well, I'll vote against Congressman Steve Womack, but you won't because you don't live there, and also, for the last two elections, he has had no major opponent. The only small satisfaction I can give you is letting Sean Connery voice your feelings about Womack. Womack? Why am I not surprised, you piece of shit? that helps a bit. It helps a little bit. It gives you a momentary visceral satisfaction, but it doesn't really change anything, but the truth is there is actually a glimmer of hope. That same committee is set to meet again next month, and Marcy Kaptur might again try to pass a provision protecting farmers from retaliation. And if she does, then let me use the chicken company's weapon against them. I'm talking, of course, about jangly guitar music to convince you that everything I'm about to say is true. Because, listen to this, there are 51 voting members on the committee. These are their names and their states. If your representative's name is up there and they vote against Marcy Captain's Amendment, it is because they, and I cannot stress this enough, are chicken f**kers. They f**k chickens. That's what they do every day, every which way. And unless they want that chicken f**ker label to follow them for the rest of their lives, they might want to think extra carefully about which way they are going to vote. Because chicken f- accusations do not come off a Wikipedia page easily. Or if they do, they tend to go right back up. Because chicken companies may be able to retaliate against farmers for speaking out, but they cannot prevent us, as one, from screaming chicken f at the top of our lungs if any of these people votes against the farmers in this tiny, tiny amendment. All potential chicken f***ers here. Don't be one of them, that's all we're saying. That's our show, we are off next week, uh, but we'll be back the week after that. Good night!
0: We just heard clips featuring the Center for Public Integrity on how the food companies managed to sideline the FDA and circumvent food safety standards. The David Pakman Show interviewed Michael Moss, author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. The Young Turks discussed Coca-Cola's propaganda campaign to trick kids into thinking that soda isn't unhealthy. Counterspin examined a case study of conflicts of interest in coverage of our food supply. Democracy Now! talked with Lori Wallach, the director of Public Citizen's Global Trade Watch, about the effects of trade deals like the TPP on the safety of international meat. David Pakman picked up that same issue and detailed several more ways that the TPP will destroy U.S. food safety standards. And finally, John Oliver on This Week Tonight dove deep into the methods major chicken production companies use to utterly crush and demoralize independent chicken farmers for the sake of maximizing profit. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
6: Hey Jay Marty Golnick here from Cleveland Ohio. Just a observation from last week's show. I was listening to the voicemails, and the one uh, one caller made the comment that couldn't believe what we don't teach kids about uh, about financial reality, and what the schools don't teach as far as financial reality. And I, I caught myself laughing. It's like, of course they can't teach the financial reality. Because if you teach the financial reality, then there's no way you're going to continue to participate in a system that you will see is inarguably slanted against your favor. As a matter of fact, I thought that the comment itself and the reality of the comment had all the makings of a good Jimmy Dore skit. That, of course, they can't teach these things because if they taught them, you wouldn't sign a 30-year loan to go to school and better yourself. Just an observation.
12: Hi, this is Jill in California calling with some post-work commute home thoughts on Chris from Dallas's voicemail about financial literacy. I think he's completely right that, and you, Jay, as well, that financial literacy is something that's overlooked in our, our education, and we could all do well to have more of that to the extent that Chris seemed to be talking about the subset of people who could afford to be at the table when dividends are handed out, I think he's right that those dividends are not handed out based on color and maybe the, the dividend distribution is in fact not subject to racism there. But I think the fact that there's a whole lot of the population who are, is not sitting at the table because they don't have access to money that they can put aside into the stock market or real estate or even their 401K, uh, even in the short term, let alone the long-term sort of buy-and-hold strategy. It sounded like Chris was talking about for a variety of reasons. One is that his own cohort is coming out of school with tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Other systems that are in place do uh, have racial components to them that keep more and more people away from that table and then there's the dividend itself for the people who are sitting at the table and can't have those dividends given to them I think there's we need to think about the racism and other systems that are inherent in developing those dividends what corporations do to their workers what kinds of costs they externalize and other things that go into creating that dividend and what how those are all affected so i apologize is a little rambling as i said at the end of the day i'm very tired but i appreciate the opportunity to get my thoughts on that and I, I actually would love to hear chris respond to that as well so i may have been misunderstanding what he was saying about uh whether that was applied to everybody or just this subset but anyway thank you jay terrific work as usual thanks mm-hmm.
9: Hey, Jay. This is Eamon uh, from La Haber, California. Just comment calling to comment on your last podcast about the debt and stuff. And I just want to say, as someone who tried to go to college and couldn't afford it, um, even without student loans, I couldn't finish community college just in the situation I am here in California, how expensive everything is. I had to stop and get a full-time job just to live. So, I while I appreciate, I guess, the Young Turks' take on Hillary Clinton's um semi-progressive like, like uh like student lo- uh, loan plan and stuff. I agree much more with Bernie where it's like he's saying, let's raise up people out of debt, but also let's raise them up in the sense of let's give them well-paying jobs even if they can't go to school. I want to finish school, but for the time being, I can't. And it just makes more sense to work and just work i i can't go to school and even I, i'm a sociology major and if i finished what i wanted to in sociology there's no guarantee i could get a job and maybe as a teacher but even then i don't know i I know people who have master's degrees and you know business and, and english and, and philosophy and they're working at walgreens or mcdonald's so it's just really frustrating and and scary to be honest like i can't live the american dream i just got married my wife and i are trying to to figure out what we want to do but it's it's so hard especially in california i live in orange county so it, especially here it's just so expensive but i feel everywhere is i have friends all over the country and they're telling me the same thing so yeah i really appreciate that episode though. thank you for bringing that to light um all right stay cool and stay awesome <laughs> bye
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I don't want to just keep harping on the discussion that Chris in Dallas started with his comments about financial literacy, but a lot of people responded to him uh, more than I've played, so I just have one more thing thought I want to add. Uh, We heard from Heather in the previous episode, basically responding to Chris by saying, don't forget that not everyone has money to invest. And then today, we heard from Jill in California sharing some great thoughts, I thought, about the deeper ways in which racism and oppression is embedded in those dividends that companies hand out. But she was also sort of questioning what Chris really meant by what he said. Was he referring to everyone and saying that everyone needed to get in on the stock market? Or was he just referring to a subsection of people who have enough money to be, you know, quote unquote, at the table, as she put it? And then there was Joey, whose message I haven't played in full, but he had this to say.
2: Hi, Jay. This is Joey calling in about
0: episode 989, the investment podcast. Chris from Dallas called in to harangue poor people for not being smarter and putting all their money in stocks. And you didn't even
2: comment on it. So when you hear somebody like Chris from Dallas talk about Oh, these poor people need to be putting their money in stocks and bonds. They're just so stupid because they're not investing their money. Well, maybe they don't have any money. You know, there's a huge proportion, tens of millions of people can't even eat. They don't have enough money to eat. What money are they going to put aside in their stocks and bonds? There's no savings there. I'm appalled that you didn't
0: mention it, that you didn't say anything about this point of, at this point. Okay, so here I have to say something that is just an awkward, humble brag – There's no getting around it because it is relevant to where I'm going with this. Over the past year or so, one of the comments I've been getting most often is from people saying that they appreciate my ability to be reasonable, just sort of as a general demeanor. Like, I stay calm, I can explain complicated stuff, I give people their due, etc. One person said recently that he admires my, quote, thoughtfulness and reason and reasonability, unquote. Well, I'll tell you the secret to being thoughtful and reasonable when dealing with other people and either having a discussion or analyzing what a person has said, and that is to address what a person has actually said, not what you think they meant by what they said. I mean, you know, it was just the last episode that we finished up a conversation between Wade and Kate because Wade had asked what was wrong with income inequality, and Kate responded by admonishing Wade for supporting inequality, a clear case of responding to what uh, you know, one person thought a person meant rather than what they actually said. Now, sure, yes, you have to look out for dog whistle code words and be wary if people have ulterior motives and so on and so on, but generally, if you're just having a conversation, you're going to have a much more productive time of it if you just address what a person has actually said, the exact words that came out of their mouth. With that in mind, let's listen again to what Chris had to say about financial literacy and who he was addressing.
3: Hi, this is Chris from Dallas. All of the different examples of how property owners were losing wealth here and there. People that stayed in the stock market, people that had a solid understanding of the of the financial system and how to take advantage of it recovered. We tell people, hey, corporations are evil. Corporations are holding you down. You should have nothing to do with corporations. And people get scared of the stock market. You know, people my, people my age, people in their 20s, don't invest. It drives me crazy to see it. But, you know, I've got people that I know that will look at the free money that they get from a 401k match and say, oh, no, I don't want to put it in there because I'm just going to lose
0: it. Okay, obviously that was a shortened version, but those were all of the points where he referred to any specific group of people. Here's what I heard. Property owners, people who already have money in the stock market, people in their 20s, and people who have jobs that offer 401k match money. So using Jay's law of responding to what people actually say rather than what we think they might mean by what they said, my interpretation of that is that he was referring to people with money, people with property, and people with cash flows that would allow for investments and or high savings rates. About the only time in the whole message he even refers to poor people was to say that it's not only poor people or people of a certain race who need financial education. It's something that needs to be taught to everyone in school. So how in the world did we go from a message that hardly mentioned poor people to the types of responses we got? You know, Heather felt Chris's message personally. She wanted to share her own story of poverty. She brought up the very important point that we can't forget about poor people. They are very often ignored and excluded from the conversation entirely. So yes, it's very important to raise those voices up. My response to her was that I thought it would have been great if Chris had made a point to acknowledge that not everyone has access to the world of saving and investing. But I didn't think that his failure To mention people in poverty had any greater meaning to it than that he just simply wasn't referring to poor people. He was referring to property owners, people with existing investments, and people with jobs who offer retirement account matching funds. And then Jill, you know, like I said, she had some great comments to add, um, but you know, then she was still unclear on what segments of society Chris had been referring to. Now, to be fair to her, she did admit that she was at the end of a long day of work and, you know, had just been commuting. So that might have clouded her understanding a bit. But, she, you know, she was just a little unclear on it. And then we come to Joey who came out swinging, accusing Chris of haranguing poor people for being too stupid, and he was appalled at me for not calling Chris out on it the first time I played his message. Joey went on to say that Chris was an affluent Republican, and he and I both must have a case of affluenza, like the kid who drove drunk, killed a bunch of people, and got off in court because his lawyer said he was too rich to understand the consequences of of his actions. I don't think I've ever seen a worse case of responding to what you think a person meant rather than what they actually said. Now, what I like to do is throw out the caveat that, hey, I can't read people's minds. I heard what they said. I'm going to respond to what they said, but I don't know what they really mean. That's my strategy. (laughs) That is not the direction Joey went. Uh, And you know what the funny thing? You know who it was who said that they admired my, quote, thoughtfulness and reason and reasonability? That was Joey who said that. He wrote it in the email he sent to me with that voicemail attached to it. Go figure. Keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202 That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode,
6: We can't see past forget how to listen. We can't see past-